Hello and welcome everyone to yet another show of Divinity Connecting the Dots, a show that reveals interconnections across concepts vital to public and planetary health. We promote a whole food, plant-based lifestyle and intersectional vegan consciousness for a healthier and happier planet. Um, today we have two the most amazing guests with us, uh, Veronica Karen and Mallory Kumbhmal. Welcome, ladies. Uh, we're going to be talking about veganism, food choices, inheritance, identity stories, organizational scaling, and leadership building, and much, much more. All right. So let's start. Let me kick it off with you, Veronica. You're joining us from Berlin today. So welcome. It's evening for you. Mallory, you're here from New York City, and, and I'm joining in from Boston. So Veronica, um, tell me a little bit about yourself and about your plant-based story. What mm -hmm. led So my plant-based story started a very long time ago. I, when I was 20 and I was doing disaster relief for the United States government. So I've had a few different evolutions in my life. And uh, for a while, I thought that that would be my career is uh, doing humanitarian work. And at that time, I had a teammate who was plant-based. And so she taught me basically how to eat plant-based and how to transition my, my food. Um, and then from there, it has evolved uh, over the past 15 years. And um, outside of uh, you know, my philosophy around food, I'm an anthropologist. Uh, and that, of course, intersects very much with subsistence. Um, I study paradigm shifts which we'll talk about. Uh, and I also am a scaling coach. And so I work with entrepreneurs around the world to help them expand their impact. And I really focus on people who are impact driven and a lot of them are actually plant-based as well. Perfect, yes. Wow, United States government and food relief and disaster relief, that's just awesome. Um, we, we definitely wanna know more around that. Um, Mallory, tell us about your plant-based um, you know, story. And, and also, um, you know, this, people say vegan and then people say plant-based. Also share a little bit, you know, uh, uh, Mallory, um, yourself and, and maybe Veronica, if you have ideas around that too, you know, what might be the difference uh, and, and how those identifiers work. But Mallory, your story first. Thanks, Nivi. It's such a pleasure to be here with both of you. I grew up in England, actually, and was very privileged to have a family who cared a lot about food and getting really healthy, organic food um, on our table. And I totally took this for granted until I got a scholarship to go to college in Virginia and there I started eating cafeteria food and started de developing a lot of health issues actually after my first year there. And at the same time, I took a class on the development of the industrial food system. And that's what really opened my mind to where our food actually comes from in America, the damage and destruction factory farms do to the environment. And that was really the start of my journey into plant-based eating pretty much halfway through that class, I was like, I'm done. <laughs> I need to change the way that I eat because this is the one thing that I have control of every day that I can do to put a vote towards the type of world that I actually want to live in, the type of world that I believe is possible. And that's a lot of, um, in a way, I never really connected the dots <laughs> until we started talking, Nivi, um, about how that's connected to my professional journey. But I think in a lot of ways, what we do at Inheritance Project is um, helping people understand the beliefs and ideas that we've inherited about food and all other areas of our life so that we can transform and let go of that and make space for a different version of ourselves, for a different version of our communities. And in terms of vegan versus plant-based, I definitely identify as plant-based. To be honest, I'm not a fully 100% strict vegan. 
And I think for a lot of people, the idea of going vegan is really intimidating, especially if you grow up on a traditional, you know, really meat-based diet. And so I really support things like meat-free Mondays, meat reduction, and encouraging people to gradually transition and not um, make it this all or nothing thing. Yeah, some wonderful thoughts there. Veronica, what about you? You know, where are you on the spectrum of vegan plant-based? Uh, so I also identify as plant-based rather than vegan. Um, and I, uh, just like Mallory was saying, I, I am not 100% strict vegan anymore because of um, health restrictions. Um, I've been through my own kind of evolution throughout the pandemic with my, my personal health. And so had to try some things that um, restrict, were restricting in ways that made it um, nearly impossible to get enough caloric intake in order to maintain veganism. But I believe in the vegan philosophy. And so that's why I maintain that I'm plant-based because I think plant-based is more than just a behavior. It's also a philosophy and it's a little bit more flexible and provides the ability to transition as needed um, depending on life circumstances. But I was vegan for um, most of my late 20s and early 30s. And as I said, still really ascribed to the philosophy behind it. Right, exactly. And then we are going to talk about how these philosophies impact our you know, lifestyle uh, and, and how they're formed and shaped by some inherited beliefs that we may have, the importance of storytelling, important of, the importance of creating those stories you know, for future generations. And Veronica, that's part of the work that you're doing and, and we're going to talk about. Um, you know, tell our viewers a little bit about what led you both actually to choose anthropology. It's one of the most fascinating disciplines. I grew up, I was raised by two anthropologists, both of my mom and dad are, you know, and and so whenever I, I see others who've, um, uh, you know, studied this field and, and are doing some really creative work around with it, um, I'm always fascinated. So uh, Mallory, tell us about your anthropological pursuits and then we'll go to Veronica. Thanks, Nimi. I can't imagine being raised by two anthropologists. That sounds amazing. I, I think my journey into anthropology was really a quest to try and understand myself and my place in the world. I, like I said, moving to Virginia when I was 17 was a big um, shift in my life and brought me into a completely different context than I was used to, um, where my background in Northwest London, where I grew up being half Chinese Singaporean, half French American, was kind of like normal. Everyone in London was from all over the world. I grew up in a community with a lot of immigrant families. And I didn't really think too much about my identity until I came to a very different context. And I started receiving questions like, what are you? Or what kind of Asian are you? Which really perplexed me because as a British person, when you say Asian, you mean someone whose family comes from India or Pakistan or Bangladesh or what in America we would call South Asian. So I immediately started understanding that all these labels about identity were invented and created and changed based on context. And so I wanted to understand the history of all of these boxes that we put each other in and how our culture created all these different identities for each other and what are what are the stories that um, different cultures, different societies have about our identity? And that's what really led me into anthropology. And I really specialized in studying ideas and stories about race and ethnicity um, and wrote uh, my senior thesis on mixed race identity. So that was really my journey into anthropology. And even though I didn't pursue it academically further than undergrad, the ethnographic way of being in the world and observing others and asking questions and always um, coming from the perspective that every single person is coming from a specific worldview or context that has an internal logic that makes sense from their orientation and every culture every community has its own and how can I seek to understand that better has served me so well in my career as a consultant and facilitator. Nivi, you're muted. 
oh my god i'm muted on my own show uh, <laughs> you know talk about um okay so so thank you for pointing that out veronica and so i was just saying that it, it's just amazing and it reminded me of this uh saying that we don't see the world as it is but we see the world as we are and it's important for us to understand those lens right and and veronica you are investing so much in understanding that that lens um uh you know that people are viewing the pandemic through and and so on but before we go into that i want to know about your journey as an anthropologist why anthropology yeah um i actually was going to say exactly what mallory said that like i am a little bit jealous that you were raised by two anthropologists this sounds like so much fun <laughs> um and so uh, there's kind of like two parts to my anthropological story. So I was drawn to anthropology um, because it it basically held the worldview that I had come up with. So I was um, kind of bullied and made fun of as a young, um, as a child and in my girlhood. And um, rather than either like bend and try to want to be like them so I wouldn't be bullied anymore or um, or take it personally. Instead, it caused questioning for me. And so I started wondering, well, like, why is your way the right way? So you say, why can't I just be me and have that be okay? And that's one of the foundational thinking of anthropology is that everyone has their own way of doing. Every culture has its own way. There is no right way or one way. And so when I stumbled upon anthropology as just a gen ed at my university studies, um, I was like, yes, this is it. I finally found my people. <laughs> Um, but why I stayed in anthropology is because uh, I wanted to become a, an applied anthropologist. So um, I spent, as I said, a couple of years doing disaster relief and humanitarian work. Um, and I wanted to be the type of person who would go into the field and work with the people who were affected in order to support them in the way that they needed rather than in the way that the government or I, with my preconceived notions, thought they needed. Um, there have been too many, um, frankly, disasters, uh, cultural clashes worldwide, when other cultures come in and say, this is what you need. And I never wanted to be that. And so um, I followed in Paul Farmer's footsteps and was using anthropology in order to inform my humanitarian work. Sadly, humanitarianism comes with a heavy side of post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I had to exit that career a lot sooner than I had planned. Yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing about, you know, the genesis of your interest in anthropology and and how um, childhood uh, experiences led you to, you know, this path uh, that you're doing such great service in at this point in time, uh, Veronica. Um, Mallory, your work at the Inheritance Project looks at exactly some of those early experiences and allows people to dip back into um, some of those, uh, you know, um, experiences, episodes, anecdotes that shape our worldview and our choices, you know, academically and professionally. Tell us more about the Inheritance Project. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the work you do. Thanks, Nivi. Yeah, our mission at Inheritance Project is first to change the way people understand the word inheritance so that we don't just refer to inheritance in terms of physical property or money that we may receive from our parents or previous generations, but looking at it as all encompassing what have we inherited from our lineage from the past that have shaped who we are. So that includes our ancestry and genetics, our culture, our values, the stories that we've been told, our beliefs, our behavior sometimes. Um, and you know, a lot of these things are very under the surface and are not talked about. And we're not given the space to really investigate and understand how our early childhood experiences, how the experiences of our parents and their parents before them have actually shaped the culture and stories that we bring into this world. And so Right now, we do a lot of programs with organizations focusing on inclusion, culture building, and team building, because I, I worked as a, before starting Inheritance Project, I worked as a strategy co consultant and facilitator at Deloitte for many years. 
And what I observed there is that many teams would rush straight into taking action. Let's go make our project plan and um, get to work and totally miss the um, slowing down and getting to know each other, each other's context. Like so often in the workplace, we're thrown into completely diverse teams with people with all different kinds of belief systems and um, you know, not really taking the time at all to understand the people who we're collaborating with. And that actually leads to a lot of miscommunication, a lot of loss of productivity and a lot of, um, you know, unneeded conflict. If we just slowed down and understood, okay, what is each of my collaborators unique inheritance? What are their beliefs? What are their values? What are the experiences that shape them? So I can understand why are they behaving this way? Why are they showing up in this way? Why are they communicating in this way? Um, and actually, instead of all of those things being a mystery and leading to frustration in our communities, we can create a space where we actually are transparent and open and talk about these things. Um, and I think there's a lot of avoidance or hesitation sometimes to open up things that are considered personal um, in the workplace. But actually, I think we're going through the shift now where more and more people are realizing that if we don't fully acknowledge that we're humans bringing into our teams a whole history um, and a whole way of seeing the world that might be completely different from the people we're working with. Um, and the more we start to acknowledge that and actually make space for those conversations, the more effective we can collaborate together. But our bigger vision is to have this kind of investigation, this kind of awareness be um, part of our daily conversation at every layer of society from high school curriculums to college curriculums to the workplace so that everywhere that we go and move in society, we have a space to not only reflect on who we are, but to really deeply understand the people who we surround ourselves with. Now, this is really important and it's amazing work that you're doing, um, Mallory. It reminds me you know, of my corporate past when, um, you know, when you're working with global teams, you may never meet your team members and you'll end up working with them for you know years altogether to launch these massive multi-country projects and and with the aid of very conscious and enlightened facilitators you know like yourselves and and the kind of work that you're doing um there is if, if at the start of a project we're able to talk about who we really are where we come from you know, what are these beliefs and so on? So a lot of this unneeded conflict uh, can can be let go off and we can um, understand and, and look at each other as human. And, and that just helps in uh, facilitating efficiency and performance on projects. Um, Veronica, my next question is to you. You are on the Forbes Next 1000 Entrepreneur list. I mean, that is amazing and, and it's, so heartiest congratulations, you know, and, and tell us, uh, you know, in, in your uh, um, experience, in your professional experience, you know, uh, with corporate world, it's a, it's a different thing. But as an entrepreneur, how how does it work? Like sometimes, you know, we're, we find ourselves in unstructured situations. Um, entrepreneurs are dealing with so many different things. The, the challenges are slightly different, you know, than uh, the structure and the well-oiled machinery of the corporate world. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Forbes next 1000, you know, entrepreneur, how does it feel to be that? And, and how did you get there? Thanks. Um, yeah, it was a happy surprise earlier this year. I was actually designated in the first uh, batch of 250. Um, so it was just this kind of like double whammy of excitement. Um, and really, I view the designation as just a confirmation of the work that I'm doing. So as an entrepreneur, um, as somebody who has had a successful exit in a company, and now I'm working to help elevate the voices of other impact-driven entrepreneurs, to have received the designation from Forbes really just feels like uh, the work that I am doing is having an impact. And um, that's exactly what any entrepreneur wants to hear. Because just as you said, the structures, like there's nobody here telling me like, you did a good job today, Veronica. Like I have to tell myself that. And so every so often we get these external um, pats on the back as well. And that's nice. 
Right. And, and those pats on the backs are so important. We're human. We thrive on feeling recognized, seen, heard, acknowledged, you know, for the work that we do. So, so thank you, Veronica and Mallory, both for the work you do. Veronica, I wanted to deep dive into stories of COVID. And uh, I, I want you to like share with us about this massively interesting, amazing project that you're working on. Thanks. Um, yeah, I I love it. I actually, you know, did another interview today before um, before we're chatting. Um, so stories of COVID, as you have alluded, it fits into my anthropological work. So since exiting disaster relief work and becoming an entrepreneur, um, I still identify as an anthropologist, and I'm still very interested in paradigm shifts. And so um, my first book was Stories of Elders, which is the maroon book that is right behind me. And that came out a couple of years ago, documenting the high tech revolution um, through those that lived it. So people who grew up with a crank car and now have an iPhone. What's that experience and transition like? And I think that a lot of young people today don't realize that that's a lived experience that um, our culture has had, um, that there are people who have lived long enough. I mean, it, it happened very fast. So there are people who have lived long enough who've experienced that. Um, and so of course, March, 2020 rolls around and um, it becomes very clear that we're on the precipice of another massive paradigm shift and now one that has been going on for quite a significant amount of time. Um, and we're still not sure what the outcomes will be because we're still in it. And really it's rare for an anthropologist to be like so steeped in the paradigm shift that they are documenting. Usually you're an outsider or it has, with as with my last book, it has already completed. And so I'm in it, I'm documenting it through ethnography. So through interviews across the world ever since March, 2020. Um, I can't even remember the number of countries now because, um, because I haven't done the tally lately, but it's it's over 55 countries have participated thus far, and we're about to hit the um, 200th interview as well. So, yeah, it's been it's been quite the ride in many different ways. Well, this is so interesting because uh, you know I was introduced to your project through a wonderful friend of ours, and uh, when I when I took that interview, um, it, it it was. Uh, you know, very insightful for me too, because of the kind of questions you asked. And and oftentimes insight resides in the type of questions we're, we're asked, um, you know, either by others or the questions we ask ourselves. And, uh, and, and it clarified to me what that, uh, what my COVID-19 experience was. And, and then I was able to process it much better. So, you know, to all our viewers who are watching this, I highly, highly recommend, please check out Veronica's, uh, you know, website. It's veronicakirin.com and also look up stories of COVID. Um, you know, that website is up there as well. And, and register, sign up to do your interview, share your experience because with those experiences, um, you know, we'll be able to share with our future generations as to how people were feeling when this pandemic happened. Um, there's another question for you, Veronica, uh, you know, to, to kind of like really talk about stories of COVID in the context of um, news and, and media, you know, and, and I uh, have heard you say this before, that just the news about the pandemic is not enough. So tell us a little bit more about that. Why do you yeah. say that? So, um, you know, I don't know if anyone else who is viewing struggled with math at a young age, but I certainly did because I didn't have the context for it. So as an adult, when I have to measure if my bookcases will fit into my new apartment or anything like that, of course I'm using math, but in school, the numbers ha didn't have context. And that's the same issue with the news and with the statistics that we receive after an event like this. Uh, the numbers have no context. And so they, they mean very little. They might mean something on a graph, but to me in everyday life, they don't connect. So um, what 
the news is is top-down approach documentation and what anthropology does and what storytelling does is the bottom-up approach we're starting with the real lived experiences which then create a seat for those numbers and a context for those numbers so then i have an understanding of what it was truly like i have an understanding of the solutions that emerged that might fit into my life because now i have a context for understanding other people's lives who experienced it as well right absolutely and well said and and then uh, uh and yeah talk about math you know they're just so many uh, uh, children um, who, uh, and, and this is not just true for math, it, it's probably true for a lot of other subjects as well, you know, where unless we understand the practical applications of them, understand them in context, they just tend to feel very theoretical and we don't know how uh, we can possibly ever apply it in our lives. Um, and uh, disciplines such as anthropology uh, enable us to see uh, live, you know, how, how that application can happen and be relevant to human life. Um, so, so Mallory, you're utilizing your superpowers of being an anthropologist and, you know, strategic facilitator at uh, uh, the Inheritance Project now. And, and since, uh, you know, uh, our platform is so much about nutrition, healthy nutrition, healthy choices, and, and so on. I, I want to understand, like, how is your work at the Inheritance Project also enabling people to connect those dots with nutrition and identity if those dots are connectable? So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, the amazing thing about working on the topic of inheritance is that it's literally connected to every realm of your life. And food is such, so fundamental to our human experience. If, I mean, if we're lucky, we're eating every day. It's something that all humans share and every single culture, every single community has developed their own traditions and rituals around food. And so often we don't realize how unique that is to our family or our community until we start talking about it or sharing it with other people. Um, and so we actually have a program called Deep Dining, which is a virtual program that we started do during COVID as an alternative for team building or holiday parties, where, which is a virtual dinner party where everyone brings a dish that's meaningful to your upbringing or culture or background or life in some way. And you get, it's facilitated and celebratory and you get to eat your meal and share the story of it with each other. So food is also something that um, seems easy for people to connect over. It's something that seems, um, you know, can, can can everyone can easily access, but at the same time, it actually leads into really deep conversation. And you actually often at those events, people end up crying or getting really emotional um, in unexpected ways because the stories that we carry about food and the associations with food that we have from our lives are actually really, really deep. And the other thing that I'll say about this is, while for a lot of us, food can be really celebratory um, and you know a source of comfort and connected to feelings of love and family. For a lot of us also, I think especially women, food can be connected to a lot of really challenging experiences and emotions and body shame. And I'm also someone who is still recovering from a variety of different disordered eating patterns. And so, food can also touch a lot of these really deep, um, painful areas of our lives too, which is a big part of our, of our inheritance. Um, so I'd say the, ma the main way that we're expl we explicitly address the connection between food and inheritance is in, in this one deep dining program, but in any of the work that we do in any of the programs that we offer, you'll start to think about your early childhood experiences, the, um, the parts of your culture that shaped you. And a lot of the times food can come, come up into that as well. Right. And, and this deep dining experience that you've curated at um, Inheritance Project, I mean, uh, I, I know we've spoken about it before. It's, it's just so amazing because food is the social glue that binds us together. You know, uh, we, we celebrate, we feast over, you know, food. We, we, when we fast, there's a food context as well when we're, you know, celebrating, if it's a religious occasion, if there is, um, you know, birth, death, all of those things. I mean, human milestones are 
surrounded with, uh, you know, food and, and our identity linked to it. Um, Veronica, as you look through these snapshots, um, you know, of how people are experiencing the pandemic, have you noticed food stories come up? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's actually this beautiful story that a woman shared with me that um, for so long, she had been part of the food support system at her son's elementary school. So she was um, helping to administer lunches to students who might otherwise not have a lunch. Um, when the pandemic came around, um, of course, the, the way that that was administered shifted and um, the school, if I remember correctly, the school received a grant which provided lunches to all students because they knew that even if you were used to sending your child to school and they were getting a lunch at school, um, it was prepared and it was a time when the child was entertained. You know, So if you're a work at home parent, you didn't have to prepare food for your child over lunch. It just, they were already at school. So they ate whether or not you had given the meal to them in the morning. Um, and of course the schools were closed and so the school said, we have received this grant. We are giving lunches to all the students, regardless of income level, come and get them. You, you need to come and you know sit in line in the car and, and go and get it. And she said, she's sitting in the car in the line to pick up her son's lunch, which um, uh, she had never done before. And she had this moment of realization of this is what it feels like for so many people who don't have reliable subsistence. And so they sit in line and wait. And she felt she felt conflicted by that because um, on the one hand, she was quite thankful to be receiving the prepared lunch so that it was a weight off, right? I and mean, we're all, especially early on in the pandemic, so many of us were unequipped in order to manage the family structure that was changing uh, forcibly. Um, and so thankful, but also guilty and um, uh, just this, this whole conglomerate of experiences that she had within herself. Um, and that's just one story. There's been a lot of stories of, um, you know, another woman talking about having uh, morning coffee with her husband. And it was like the second week in a row that they were having morning coffee together. They'd never had it always at the same time. And um, he was clicking his, he had, a, I think, a metal straw or something, he was clicking the straw in the cup and, oh, I think it was his smoothie, but um, just making a noise in a way that just suddenly snap. She snapped at him. She was so frustrated. And it was this outlet because of the time orientation that food has for us, that we tend to do it in community and we tend to do it together and we default to that even when we're not used to it. So there's been a lot of food stories that come out. There's also been a lot of food thinking that has come out of the pandemic as well. Yeah, and and you're right. Human beings are creatures of habit, you know, and and we're creatures of routine. And and I remember, uh, you know, when I first went plant based, which was not too long ago, uh, three years ago, um, I would like clockwork at 11 a.m. need my coffee. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like want a coffee or anything like that. It was at a need level. I like I needed that coffee. And and it made me think because I was cleaning out my body. I was adding these new, uh, you know, plants and berries and I was eating the rainbow, understanding the philosophy of eating plant based and, and potentially leading a 100 percent vegan lifestyle in the years to come. Um, and I realized that I was I was enslaved by these moments that initially may have started off as I want coffee it's a good idea let me get into work and let me grab a cup of coffee but now I was bound by them and and I had forgotten whether I was the master of my choices or whether these foods these ingredients in my environment were they driving my behavior and it's pretty interesting, you know, how uh, you've mentioned about this, you know, story and, and amazing stories that you're discovering at COVID, uh, stories of COVID. Can't wait to, you know, see until all the stories are done, analyzed, and, and you know, the book is out and, and so on. It, it's just fascinating. Um, Mallory, uh, you know, what challenges come up for people 
when they identify and start unpacking their inheritance. And you mentioned that people even cry. It's a cathartic moment. It reminds them of something. So at your work, uh, what are the different you know, slew of challenges you uh, encountered and helped people with? Well, the first thing I'll say is that food is so deeply connected to our identity. Like I was saying, every culture has specific food traditions and rituals and things you're supposed to eat on certain occasions. I remember when I first um, became vegan when I was 19 and I went to Thanksgiving at my American extended family's place and they were like, but it's Thanksgiving, you have to eat turkey. And they couldn't wrap their heads around it because it was so embedded in the culture and identity. And similarly, when my brother announced to my French grandfather that he was a vegetarian, my grandfather's response was that he was disowning him from the family. And the way that I understood this is that actually to him, like eating meat and cheese is so fundamental to the French identity, to who he is as a person, that my brother saying he's not going to consume that anymore was almost saying, like, I reject you as a person. I reject your culture or our, our family culture. And so when we start to change our diets or start to think about food in different ways, it brings up really deep stuff about who we are. And so in order to you know, change our diet, it's not only about changing what we put in our body, it's also changing our identity and often like letting go of parts of our inheritance that we might be really attached to or feel really connected with um, that has a lot of emotional, um, emotional stuff wrapped up in it. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, Anyone who's looking to either transition their diet or unpack their food choices, um, I would say, you know, amazing that you're starting to look into this in a deeper level and also be prepared that unexpected things might come up and it might get deeper than you um, than you anticipate. And so that's why I really recommend having a regular meditation practice, regular exercise, physical movement practice, which are both really great tools to help you regulate emotion. But then also, um, if you're starting to go on this journey and need more professional support, obviously, it's really great to have the support of a proper licensed therapist to guide you through um, unpacking some of these things, because food can also be really connected to trauma. So for example, in my mom's side of the family. Um, they emigrated from China to Singapore um, in the 1900s. And my mom even passed down to me stories of what her grandmother and mother lived through during the Japanese occupation of Singapore and how there was no food and everyone was surviving on cockroaches. And that was, she would constantly tell me the story to make me feel gratitude for the amazing food that I got to eat every day. And also you know, she inherited an obsession with saving food and not wasting food because of the experiences of her mother and grandmother before her. And so starting to look at the food stories in our history can also reveal a lot of really challenging, difficult things in our history that we have to, that we might have to grapple with. Um, and so it's, it's a very deep and complex investigation. And I really think that um, the, I want to destigmatize talking about these things because I think the more that we share our stories, the more we realize, oh, we're not the only one with traumatic food stories in our history. We're not the only one with, um, you know, issues in this way. And even if every single individual's unique inheritance around food is different, we can at least connect over some of those shared um, those shared connection points, even if our context or our specific culture or the country that we came from is different. And so um, that's something that I think can help when we feel challenged or isolated by the things that are being revealed to us is, is re being reminded that actually we are part of a human community and so many other people might be experiencing similar things. And um, that's why I'm so passionate about creating spaces to have these kinds of conversations. Yes, that's an incredible example. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and you're right, we need to have these spaces. And as you mentioned, um, you know, creating these spaces early on 
during school, um, you know, in cafe school cafeterias and, uh, and and in colleges and universities is very important. So people, you know, have tasted how it feels like to be vulnerable. And, and so that, and, and I remember that a lot of people, uh, you know, in, in a corporate setup, uh, when they were confronted with facilitation, which needed them to open up and needed them to bring their personal life and not just their professional life, you know, to uh, the workplace, they, they didn't know what to say. Like a lot of them couldn't compute that. And they were like, no, but this is something I never do, you know. What, what stays at home, I just kind of like leave my personal identity at the door and then we, I come in and I become this martinet and this general who is going to just do command and control in, in the workplace. Um, so so you're right, we need to identify those spaces early on and, and need to bring, uh, uh, remove the stigma and the taboos that are associated with vulnerability and, and talking about these things. Um, Veronica, your work, um, is uh you know one-on-one -on -one interviews and in-depth uh you know understanding so it, it does create that safe space but when you walk away from these interviews and and you take you take in the full landscape of all these you know 200 interviews 55 countries you know all of that what are some of the common threads that you see that are coming up and in, and are connecting all these diverse Places, diverse people, continents, all together. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's definitely all of these shared contexts that hum humans have worldwide, just like Mallory's work around food, around inheritance, around family lived experiences throughout generations. Um, there's definitely some experiences with regards to um, what people default into, which also is something that we're inherited. Um, and then this, this reaction around pausing, because we've been forced to pause, especially when a lockdown was happening, that was a forced and imposed pause upon us. Um, and so in a way that created a forced introspection. Um, and what I've seen is that the people who are willing to accept the opportunity uh, that this pause was here, whether or not we'd wanted it, um, and accept it as an opportunity for introspection and for choice, um, and then made choices around how they want to live afterwards or even in the midst of it, that's where I saw the most resiliency. Um, and I realized that um, people were making choices across um, income levels, across uh, contacts across nations, across ethnicities. So it's not just someone who was privileged and they can work from home and they can take care of whatever it is they need to take care of. Um, people who are making choices even in the hardest of circumstances, we're still uh, showing more resiliency, um, at least of spirits, uh, than those who were just allowing themselves to be subject to uh, the upheaval and um, and then becoming basically a victim of the upheaval. Yes, exactly. And, and that upheaval, how we all um, react to it, respond to it. Um, and, and some of us, you know, resort to food because as Mary was mentioning before, food is comforting, right? So a lot of people seem to have um, and I know that there are some joyful things coming out of this too. For instance, bread making all of a sudden at home has become popular. Everyone wants to create these recipes of how they made banana bread or you know sourdough and and so on. And and we know you know as you guys, you're both anthropologists that we perhaps have a bread center in the neofrontal cortex, you know, somewhere. We, we smell bread, freshly baked uh, bread, leavened, unleavened, whatever, uh, you know, uh, your cultural ways of making it is. It, it tends to work with people. But then um, uh, the upheaval, the isolation, um, you know, during the pandemic has also created so many other, you know, things that we need to navigate um, around. Um, 
in Mallory, in your work lately, you know, during the pandemic, have you seen any of this come up? Uh, and especially with your deep dining experience, you know, as you talk about healthy choices, have you noticed how people may have struggled with um, continuing to eat healthy during the pandemic? But I also hear that on the flip side, people have become even more attuned to these words like immunity and, and some of us might be going you know the other direction have, have you seen any of these choices being made well obviously i haven't been doing formal research like veronica but my observation is really that it's a spectrum and a lot of people reacted to the pandemic in different ways based on their inheritance and identity and past experiences and to this um, moment of pause so for some people who i know and worked with this lockdown period was amazing and joyful and they got to spend way more time with their family and cook more and have that really nourishing connection. Um, in my own experience, I was living alone in New York City by myself and I felt really isolated and I actually ended up falling back into old disordered eating habits of overly binge eating um, as a source of comfort because I wasn't getting that um, connection from my community and friends. And so I think it's really a range um, based on the context that people are in and also what kind of past experiences they're, um, they're, they're carrying. And the one, the one thing that I'll say in, in common uh, that, that I, I've noticed is that since the pandemic, people seem to be much more open to having these kinds of conversations about inheritance and identity. And I think a lot of that is what you said, Veronica, that this sense of pause and like regular life stopping and like, oh, I actually, I'm reflecting for the first time on who I am and what I've been doing and where my life is going. And no matter what, what, you know, what part of society you're a part of, I think that's is a shared experience. And I've noticed that um, since the pandemic, people seem to be more open to these conversations. I also think the other factor for that is you know, once you're starved for social connection and being in a forum where you can actually connect with other people in a meaningful way feels so much more meaningful than when you're maybe over socialized or over scheduled or always in around other people. And I think one of the most meaningful sessions I facilitated um, towards the end of 2020 was with um, a team and a couple of the people had been hired into that team since the pandemic. And all of their meetings and collaboration were done on um, on email and conference call. So doing that deep dining gathering was actually the first time they'd even seen the face of the people they'd been working with for five months, let alone had had an actual conversation and got to know each other because you know, when we're not sharing physical space in an office, we don't have those informal opportunities to chat and connect, which actually creates so much um, feeling of connection and and satisfaction and engagement in in your work. Um, so the lack of that, I think, has opened and revealed to people how important it is to actually make intentional spaces for that. Um, since those informal spaces have been taken away, we realize actually we need to carve out more conscious spaces for that conversation and connection. Absolutely. And, and those conscious, mindful, intentionally created spaces are things that we can design proactively, you know, versus just falling into them by virtue of what our routine might have been, the school run or the work run, coffee run, whatever it is that, you know, we were so used to. The other thing is around social stamina. You know, as the world has started to open up in between waves, I, I hope there isn't another one, you know, fingers crossed. But then I, I see like wanting to go out, but then getting tired really quickly with like all the stimulus that suddenly was taken away during the lockdown. Um, and, and now to sort of get used to that social stimulus again um, is, is taking a bit, you know? So, so we've all had to deal with, uh, you know, the pandemic um, just throwing us all out of gear and then reinvent new ways to do things. Um, and, and Veronica, you know, your work involves 
as a scaling coach um, involves really helping entrepreneurs, you know, scale up and, and build empires, as you call it, you know? So, so this empire building model that you have, like, I'm really fascinated with it. I'm, I'm very curious to know about it. Um, our viewers want to know. Uh, but first, tell us, what is the definition of a scaling coach? How does it work? Um, what does a scaling coach do? So I work with primarily small business entrepreneurs, small to mid-sized businesses um, that have, the entrepreneur has been working for a couple of years and they are on the hamster wheel. They are exhausted. They don't understand where the freedom and where the riches and where all the things that are advertised as entrepreneurship, where that is for them. They're tired, they're burning out. And um, I say this as somebody who also was one of those small business owners at one point. Um, the issue with small business is that they're not giving the tools like startups are. So startups are surrounded by an ecosystem of uh, accelerators and incubators and venture capitalists and angels and government grants who all are initially telling them scale, 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 scale. And what scaling means is being able to grow exponentially beyond our human 24 hour limits. So a lot of small business owners end up trapped in their human 24 hour limit. So they're working themselves to the bone. They're trying to do everything in the business uh, and the company can't grow because they're trading their time for money to some extent. And so what I work with entrepreneurs on is stealing the startup tactics for scaling and giving them to small businesses in the same way that I did for my own small business before I sold it, which opened up my time from 70 hour work week to a 10 hour work week. And so that creates the opportunity for more engagement, more impact, and of course, more income. But I choose specifically work only with impact-driven entrepreneurs because I want them to be able to truly have the impact and the legacy, thus the empire, uh, that they truly want for the world. Right. This is fascinating. You know, um, a lot of the viewers who are watching us are, you know, vegan, plant-based entrepreneurs. Uh, some of them have, uh, you know, plant-based nutrition and vegan nutrition businesses or vegan products. Um, uh, they're smaller scale. And then there are others who work with grassroots organizations. A lot of them are animal rights uh, activists. Um, you know, there are persons like me who might have, you know, worked for an employer before, but then have shifted gears, are in training transition and and sometimes even looking for where is the next thing that they can you know what's the next thing they can do to make impact um and it's daunting veronica you know it's daunting to come out of large you know institutions uh which will give you onboarding tools they will give you the lanyard they will give you your business card and hand you the laptop uh, but then when you give up all of that, as, as Mallory and I have both experienced, and then you don't have a business card except the one you created for yourself or T-shirts like the one that I'm wearing, you know, this is my own brand. Um, and, and you don't necessarily have uh, all of the support. You don't have an HR business partner. You don't have a, you know, CFO to go to and you know, battle about budgets. Um, so, so Veronica, how can people um, reach out to you um, to get started on, you know, receiving this scaling coaching uh, from you. Um, and also if you can uh, tell us a little bit around, you know, uh, how do you mean entrepreneurs who want to create impact? Because you know, people watching will argue that all of us want to create impact. And so what is the specific uh, type of entrepreneur you're interested in helping? Um, and, and essentially ones who don't have access to the accelerators and the venture capital funds because nonprofits don't you know i'm you know, we we go out looking for grants and we're told but what's the roi well roi is happier people healthier people more hopeful future for the planet uh doesn't cut it tell me dollar terms you know so so talk to us a little bit uh, more about that yeah, and having been in the disaster relief sector and then having my first business was a nonprofit uh, company as well. So, yes, there, there's the, the, the business speak and the milestones and the statistics, again, um, aren't aren't taught uh, at that level. And oftentimes not, not to small business owners either, because you start something out of uh, the goodness of your heart. You start something because you feel compelled to share. Um, and so impact driven by, by that, I mean, uh, people who aren't just in it for the money, basically. You're not here to make a quick buck. 
you're here to leave a legacy. And I certainly believe that everyone watching is probably saying, well, of course I'm an impact-driven entrepreneur. And I truly believe that Divinity is the type of brand that invites impact-driven uh, entrepreneurs and individuals to watch. So um, if you feel like you're saying yes to that, then you know I'm not surprised and I welcome you. Um, so if you want support or even just want to explore what all this could mean for your business, uh, just come on over to my website. There's a guide that you can download that will find your scaling blind spots. And then we can have a conversation around it. I'm always happy to hop on a call and there's my calendar is actually right on my homepage. So it's very easy to get in touch with me. I, I like to be as accessible as possible. All right. Thank you so much for that. And, and to viewers, whoever's listening, you want impact and you want scale. Veronica Karen is your person. Please look her up and scaling coaching might just be uh, the coaching that, that you might be uh, you know, needing. Um, Mallory, my next question is, is for you. Um, tell us about what's up at inheritance project uh, you know what's next is there a new workshop is there you know a workbook uh, etc like everything that that our viewers could benefit from and and to get to know your work better thanks nivy before i answer that i want to say veronica i'm so inspired by your work especially because so many people i talk to through inheritance project feel this deep sense of loss around the stories from their elders. I know from my own family, like when we immigrated to Singapore, we cut ties with our family. So we don't even know what village or where we came from. And so many people in America who are also immigrants, I think most of us are here, feel the same way. Like we don't even know beyond our maybe grandparents, like what experiences our ancestors even had or how that that's shaping us. And I talk to a lot of people who are feeling that way. So I really think stories of COVID and all the work you're doing to document these experiences are a huge gift to future generations who, are, who might be trying to understand where did I come from? Why do I behave this way? Why do I have these beliefs? And like giving them that gift of those stories is so powerful. And I'm like, I want to build an empire. I will definitely be reaching out to you after this call to talk. Uh, to talk. Um, and then in terms of Inheritance Project, we have, yes, on our website, we have a free online workbook, which is an opportunity. It's a 30 minute self-guided self-reflection exercise where you can start to journal and, and think about your inheritance. And we use the framework from this sociologist called Kwame Appiah, who we love. Um, his framework is the five C's of identity. And that's the foundation of our workbook and our intro workshop. And the five C's are country, culture, class, creed, and color. And so the workbook is a investigation of how those different aspects of who you are have shaped your life experience. And if you wanna dive a little deeper and start not just thinking about this for yourself, but exploring it and talking about it in community, we offer free open to the public workshops once per season. And the one for the fall is coming up on October 21st um, at 5.30 Eastern time, I believe. So that's a great opportunity to experience our facilitation style and approach and how we lead and open these kinds of conversations. And if you want to get the notifications about that, you can follow us on Instagram at Inheritance Project and also sign up for our email updates on our website. And the other thing I'll say is, I think also on our website, you can find a link to schedule time with me if you wanna chat more about bringing something like deep dining or other kinds of inclusion and team building programs to your company or organization. All right, thank you so much uh, for sharing all of those deets, uh, both of you. Um, you are amazingly resilient, um, you know, resilient uh, women, passionate for the work that you're doing, very inspiring, and, and it's always so great uh, you know, to speak with you. Veronica, and uh, with you, Mallory, uh, as we draw our episode to a close, Mallory, uh, may I invite you uh, to, you know, take us through a meditative minute. You're, you're great at, you know, doing that. I'm very sure that our uh, viewers will appreciate it too. Sure. Thank you, Nivia. I'd be happy to. Okay. Thanks. I'll invite everyone to either sit or, or stand up nice and tall, lengthen your spine. 
And you're welcome to close your eyes or simply lower your gaze if you prefer. We're going to do a few rounds of five, five, five breath, which is inhaling for five counts, holding the breath for five counts, and then exhaling for five counts. Before we start, let's just all take a deep breath in through our nose. And then exhale, sigh it out through the mouth. Two more like that. Deep breath in. Exhale, release. One more deeper breath. Exhale, let it go. Good. Now we'll begin. Inhale through the nose for five, four, three, two, one. Hold the breath in. Five, four, three, two, one. Exhale. Five, four, three, two, one. Inhale. Five, four, three, two, one. Hold. Five, four, three, two, one. Exhale. Five, four, three, two, one. Inhale. Five, four, three, two, one. Hold. Five, four, three, two, one. Exhale. Five, four, three, two, one. Allow your breath to return to a natural pace in and out through your nose, perhaps breathing a little slower, a little more deeply or more intentionally. And come to bring, allow yourself to bring to mind one thing from this conversation that stuck out with you or that you want to carry into your day. that you feel inspired to integrate into your life, perhaps. And in the next few breaths, you're welcome to slowly open your eyes and rejoin us. Thank you so much, Mallory, for that grounding meditative minute. Veronica, Kiran, and Mallory Kamamal, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, and I thank all our viewers who joined us today. I hope you truly enjoyed this. Until next Thank time. You. Thank Bye -bye. you, Nevi.